Good evening. Yellen talks taxes. Hedge funds set to devour the stimulus. An emergency room doctor on George Floyd's last minutes. The Minneapolis police say George Floyd's killers should have known better. And a no-knock raid in the Bronx brings fears of a new chapter in the drug war. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, April 5th, 2021. Texas Governor Greg Abbott said he would not throw out the ceremonial opening pitch at the Texas Rangers home opener Monday after Major League Baseball, MLB, removed July's All-Star Game from Atlanta in protest over Georgia's new voting restrictions. The announcement on Friday was a high-profile reaction to the Georgia state legislature's vote last month, making it more difficult for Georgians to vote, including making it a crime to offer food and water to voters waiting in line. The voting law is supported by Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp, but faces legal challenges from civil rights groups and others who say it's meant to suppress voters. Abbott, who is also a Republican, said in an open letter to the Texas Rangers that he would not participate in an event held by MLB and that the state would not seek to host the All-Star Game or any other MLB special events. The Rangers are playing the Toronto Blue Jays and is the only team in the league to operate at 100% capacity after playing the entirety of last year's regular season to stands, empty stands, amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Meanwhile, United States Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell lashed out at, Amer- at corporate America today, warning CEOs to stay out of the debate over the new voting law in Georgia. McConnell said, my advice to the corporate CEOs of America is to stay out of politics. Don't pick sides in these big fights. The Georgia law brought a backlash from some U.S. companies with strong ties to the state, including Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines. And Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen used her first major address as Treasury Secretary to argue for global minimum corporate tax rate. It comes as President Joe Biden has called for raising the corporate tax from 21 to 28 percent to raise money for his two trillion dollar plus infrastructure plan. Another consequence of an interconnected world has been a 30 year race to the bottom on corporate tax rates. Competitiveness is about more than how U.S. headquarters headquartered companies fare against other companies in global merger and acquisition bids. It's about making sure that governments have stable tax systems that raise sufficient revenue to invest in essential public goods and respond to crises, and that all citizens fairly share the burden of financing government. President Biden's proposals announced last week call for bold domestic action, including to raise the U.S. minimum tax rate and renewed international engagement, recognizing that it's important to work with other countries to end the pressures of tax competition and corporate tax base erosion. We're working with G20 nations to agree to a global minimum corporate tax rate that can stop the race to the bottom. Together, we can use a global minimum tax to make sure the global economy thrives based on a more level playing field in the taxation of multinational corporations and spurs innovation, growth, and prosperity. 
Yellen says she wants to challenge the world's economic powers to focus on climate change and on ways to improve vaccine access for the world's poorest countries. But any plans for a Green New Deal are facing huge obstacles in the United States, especially on Wall Street. Lynn Paramore is senior research analyst for the Institute for New Economic Thinking. She wrote an article earlier this month, Meet the New Koch Brothers, the hedge fund activist wrecking America's Green New Deal, on the Institute for New Economic Thinking website. She says unless the Biden administration is sharp, wealthy predators may be lying in wait to fleece taxpayers. There's a problem here, and a lot of folks don't know about it. There's a group of hedge fund guys. They're called shareholder activists, and I really hate that term because they're really predators. They're sort of the descendants of the corporate raiders from the 1980s. If you remember Oliver Stone's movie Wall Street, Gordon Gecko was sort of the avatar Mm-hmm. For those guys that would take over companies, extract whatever value there was, and move on. Well, these hedge fund activists do something similar. They start buying up shares of a company, and they start telling a company what to do with its resources, what to do with its profits. And for the hedge fund guys, they want a quick turnaround. They want a quick profit on those shares that they bought. They put pressure on the company to buy back shares of its own stock. There are fewer shares out there. It means the price of a share goes up. The hedge fund manager can make a quick buck. The hedge fund manager then dumps the stock and moves on their merry way, having made a tidy profit. The company, however, is often the worst for wear. It's a way of extracting value from companies. And if what Biden says is true, that he wants to make America competitive with China in areas like like clean technology, these stock buybacks have got to stop because guess what? Chinese companies are not hampered by this kind of Wall Street manipulation. They typically don't do buybacks. So they're able to use their resources to do all the things our companies should be doing, investing in R&D and manufacturing. There's something that really needs to give on this subject. Stock buybacks used to be illegal because they were considered a form of stock manipulation. But under Reagan, they were made legal again, and it's really, it's time to ban them. Describe exactly what a stock buyback is. When a company takes its profits and uses them to buy back shares, outstanding shares of its own stock. When a company does that, when it buys back shares of its own stock, then there are fewer shares out there. Each share is now worth more. The price of the share has gone up. It's basically a Wall Street trick to jack up the price of a stock in the short term. And again, this is a maneuver called pump and dump. When hedge fund managers do it, they buy shares of the stock. They pressure a company to do all kinds of manipulation to jack that stock price up. They make a profit and then they get the hell out of Dodge and they leave the company having spent its resources on buying back its own stock instead of doing things like making the products we need for something like an infrastructure and climate proposal. What can be done to stop this from basically gutting the president's plan? They were once illegal, and they should be banned. And at the very least, uh, the government should require that any company that is going to get subsidies in terms of partnership for an infrastructure and climate plan will not be able to do buybacks during the course of that government contract. Biden, I think, is actually sympathetic to this problem. He has been versed in this subject by economists who really know what they're talking about, like William Lazonic, who's one of the leaders in this field of business innovation. 
But unfortunately, a lot of people around him still don't understand how the stock market really works. And they don't really understand how these Wall Street tricks go down. If you look at the commentary on the infrastructure climate proposals, you don't see a lot of talk about stock buybacks and connection. So there's an education process that really needs to happen. We're sort of in the second gilded age right now since the late 70s, 1980s. I mean, a lot of things really got out of hand. So we want to make plans for the future, for the 21st century, but we're stuck with this Wall Street mindset that's straight out of the 1980s. It says that markets know everything, leave everything to the markets. Well, unfortunately, when you leave everything to the markets, you're not going to get investment in the long-term health of an economy or a society. That's not how Wall Street works. Wall Street is about short-term profits. Lynn Paramore is Senior Research Analyst for the Institute for New Economic Thinking. And the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin entered its fifth day with testimony from an ER doctor and the Minneapolis police chief. Dr. Bradford Langenfeld was a senior resident on duty that night at Hennepin County Medical Center and tried to resuscitate Floyd. He says there was no sign of drugs and that the cause of death struck him from the start as caused by a lack of oxygen. Did the paramedics uh, who arrived uh, at the emergency department give you a report? They did. Uh, do you recall what they said for purposes of treating Mr. Floyd? I do. Um, the report they gave us is that they were called to a scene of someone who was suffering from a medical emergency. As I recall, and this, this is what I was told at the time, they were initially called for a a lower type of acuity event of facial trauma, and then that was upgraded to an individual in distress. Uh, they reported that on their arrival, the individual did not have a pulse, and CPR was started. Um, they placed an eye gel, which is a supraglottic airway device. It's basically a a super what supraglottic airway device. It's just a sort of a tube that goes down into the throat and can ventilate the lungs. Um, and then they gave medications, including epinephrine and sodium bicarbonate. Um, did, did they say to you for purposes of caring or giving treatment to Mr. Floyd that they felt he had uh, suffered a drug overdose? Not in the information they gave, no. Did they tell you in the information they gave uh, that they felt that Mr. Floyd had had a heart attack? No. Did you receive any information or indication from the paramedics when they brought Mr. Floyd in that anyone had attempted CPR on Mr. Floyd at the scene on May 25th, 2020? I did not receive a report that Mr. Floyd had received bystander CPR, no. Did you uh, receive a report that he had received uh, CPR from any of the officers who may have been on the scene on May 25th, 2020? No. Is uh, the administration of CPR uh, right away important for you to know uh, when you're dealing with a patient who has suffered cardiac arrest? Is it important for you to know about that? It is in the sense that it informs the likelihood of survival. And, and what do you mean by that, Dr. Langenfeld? It's well known that 
any amount of time that a patient spends in cardiac arrest without immediate CPR markedly decreases the chance of a good outcome. Approximately 10 to 15 percent decrease in survival for every minute that CPR is not administered. Did the paramedics then tell you anything about the care that they had administered to Mr. Floyd? Yes. Can you tell us what they told you? That they had started CPR and placed that airway device and started bagging the patient, as in providing breaths. Have the paramedics tried to resuscitate Mr. Floyd? Yes. Do you recall how long? The report we received was for approximately 30 minutes. And a first responder had testified last week she was prevented by police from helping Floyd when she arrived at the scene. Dr. Lagenfield went on to describe George Floyd's last minutes in the ER. I didn't. There was, again, no report that this patient had, for example, overdosed on a specific medication such as a calcium channel blocker or any other medication for which there might be a very specific antidote. And so in that sense, I didn't feel that there was a specific toxin that we could give a medication for that would readily reverse his arrest. And what about then hypoxia? So hypoxia being, again, one of the most common causes of PEA asystole just in general. I did then, as I'd mentioned, use the ultrasound to look in the abdomen and did not see any evidence of hemorrhage. There was no obvious significant external trauma that would have suggested that he suffered anything that could produce bleeding sufficient to lead to a cardiac arrest. And so based on the history that was available to me, I felt that hypoxia was one of the more likely possibilities. And hypoxia as an explanation for his cardiac arrest, meaning oxygen insufficiency? Correct. I think it's probably best to think of these as sort of a spectrum. At the end of the case, Mr. Floyd, there was virtually no cardiac activity. And at that point, in the absence of any apparent reversible cause, and because Mr. Floyd had been in arrest for, by this time, 60 minutes, I determined that the likelihood of any meaningful outcome was far below 1% and that we would not be able to resuscitate Mr. Floyd. And so I then pronounced him dead. Dr. Bradford Langenfeld, who was a senior resident on duty that night at Hennepin County Medical Center. Minneapolis Police Chief Madaria Arredondo testified Monday that now-fired officer Derek Chauvin violated departmental policy in pressing his knee on George Floyd's neck and keeping him down after Floyd had stopped resisting and was in distress. Arredondo, the city's first black chief, fired Chauvin and three other officers the day after Floyd's death last May and in June called it murder. Is what you see in Exhibit 17, in your opinion, within Minneapolis Police Departmental policy 
5-300 authorizing the use of reasonable force? It is not. And why not? That is, that is uh, it has to be objectively reasonable. We have to take into account uh, the circumstances, information, the threat to the officer, the threat to others, um, and we, um, the severity of that. Uh, so that is not uh, part of our policy. That is not what we teach, and uh, that should be condoned. When do you believe, or do you have a belief as to when this restraint, the restraint on the ground that you viewed, should have stopped? Once Mr. Floyd, and this is based on my viewing of the, the, the videos, um, once Mr. Floyd had stopped resisting, and certainly once he was um, uh, in distress and trying to verbalize that, um, that, that should have stopped. Um, there's, there's an initial reasonableness in trying to just get him under control over the, in the first few seconds. But, but uh, once there was no longer any resistance, and clearly when Mr. Floyd was no longer responsive and even motionless, to continue to apply that level of force to a person proned out, handcuffed behind their back, um, that that in no way, shape, or form is anything that um, uh, is by policy, is not part of our training, and it is certainly not part of our ethics or our values. Sir, based on your review of the video and based on your own experience and training as an MPD officer, did you see signs during the encounter that Mr. Floyd was exhibiting um, indicia of being in medical distress? Yes. Yes. And you saw at one point, I think you just testified that Mr. Floyd was unresponsive. That is correct. And uh, that officers, were you aware that officers couldn't find a pulse? Could you repeat that, sir? And were you aware that officers at the time of the restraint were unable to find a pulse? Yes, I was aware of that. And so stated. I was aware that the officers were not able to find a pulse, yes. Did you see the defendant uh, or any of the officers attempt to provide first aid to Mr. Floyd? I did not see any of the defendants try to attempt to provide first aid to Mr. Floyd. The defendant did not try CPR. He did not start chest compressions. Sustain is leading. Rephrase. Did you see them? Prov did you see them provide any medical attention? I did not. Then, based on these observations, uh, do you have an opinion as to whether the defendant violated MPD departmental policy seven three fifty by failing to render aid to Mr. Floyd? I, I agree that uh, the defendant violated our policy in terms of rendering aid. Thank you. Uh, I have no further questions at this time, Your Honor. If you could please take me. Minneapolis Police Chief Madaria Arredondo. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. 
New York City public schools will no longer be required to close following two reported and unrelated cases of COVID-19. Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that today, abolishing the so-called two-case rule that's led to numerous schools having to suddenly shift to remote learning for weeks and creating inconsistency and confusion for families and students. The change comes during the city's last opt-in window for families to choose whether to switch to in-person learning. And is now extending the window by two days. The city is now extending the window from Wednesday to Friday, April 9th, to allow families to reconsider their decision in light of the two-case rule being eliminated. De Blasio said he believes parents will choose to enroll their students in in-person learning because they know the two-case rule is being retired. But the United Federation of Teachers is skeptical, and they said so in a statement reacting to the mayor, written by President Michael Mulgrew. He says... A proclamation is not a plan. The city can't change the two-case rule without Albany's approval, adding that students now account for two-thirds of the new infections and that any change to the two-case rule has to take the safety of children and their families into account. And in more city news, a recent city council hearing revisited an alarming incident involving the NYPD in the Bronx last month. An army of cops smashed through a woman's door without warning, announcing they had a warrant. And then after smashing holes in walls and turning the apartment upside down, found two joints worth of pot. Besides a small amount of weed, there was a family, including a 10-year-old and a one-month-old baby. Because of the pot, the raid was listed by police as a success. It cost the family $1,000 for a new door. The pot charges made before it was legalized last week were dropped. Civil rights attorney Joel Berg says the raid is typical of what causes distrust between the public and the cops. The NYPD has a very large group of narcotics units throughout the city that regularly send confidential informants into make drug buys and then go to uh, judges and get no-knock warrants. Typically, these informants are drug users themselves or people with criminal records or who are currying favor with the police in order to avoid prosecution themselves or in some instances even uh, to obtain drugs. Their stories are unfortunately believed with dazzling regularity, even though quite often they're making it up. In this case, according to the article in today's Daily News, someone came around to that house and claimed and asked to buy drugs and was refused because they didn't sell any drugs out of there. And yet, apparently, that informant's word was accepted, probably because the nephew who lived there had a criminal record, although he had no record of selling drugs. Usually, in my experience, I've seen an awful lot of these. When they bust in, they either find nothing or they find a very small amount of drugs for personal use. And very rarely do these no-knock raids result in taking down major drug mills, major stash houses. Most of the time, they either find nothing or they find a very small amount of marijuana or occasionally cocaine for personal use. And yet they arrest the people anyhow, and they write it off as a successful raid. Uh, I had a case a while back where the only thing they found was a tobacco grinder that they claimed had a residue of marijuana. They didn't even bother to test it. They gave the guy a ticket. 
They didn't even submit any papers, prosecutorial papers, pursuant to the DA's office. The charge was dismissed. And yet the uh, officer in charge uh, wrote up paperwork claiming that it has been a successful, positive outcome. This goes on all the time. It's pretty outrageous. If you look back at the history, uh, you will find that in 2003, there was a highly publicized botched raid on a woman's apartment in Harlem, a woman named Alberta Spruill, in which she died. She like had a heart attack out of fright. Commissioner Kelly, who was relatively new to the job at the time, and Bloomberg was relatively newly uh, elected, they did a whole huge mea culpa in which uh, they put out a report saying, you know, we're going to take steps to make sure that this doesn't happen again. That we're going to make sure that the informant's stories are verified. Almost 20 years since that incident, all of those promises have proved to be uh, empty promises and have been ignored. After a few years, the narcotics units went right back to what they've been doing before, relying upon highly suspect information from informants and busting into people's houses. What effect do you think this uh, legalization of marijuana is going to have on this? My guess is not that much because they are still going to claim positive results if they find marijuana. And occasionally they find a stick or two of cocaine, which is still illegal. They rarely find any significant large-scale selling operation. The notion that it has to be no knock is particularly outrageous. If it's a major dash house, the people there are not going to be able to destroy all the drugs and flush them all down the toilet just because the police announced their presence in advance. What the no-knock system really does, it's aimed at the very low-level dealer who just has a tiny amount of drugs in the house and could stash flush them down the toilet, to which, you know, I would say, so what? <laughs> I mean, and yet this is the excuse for no-knock warrants. The main thing is it's used to justify the existence of a very large groups of units. There's uh, five or six in the different boroughs. Sometimes it's split into two units like Brooklyn North and Brooklyn South. And there have been numerous scandals over the years. Of In Brooklyn South, for example, there have been cases of trading sex in return for not uh, arresting people. There have been a lot of instances of a practice that is known in the trade as flaking, where the cops do not voucher all of the narcotics seized, but instead use some of it to uh, to give to informants uh, in return for additional information. Uh, flaking has always been a serious problem uh, with the narcotics units and is not policed nearly enough. Civil rights attorney Joel Berg, in 2010, there were 60 to 70,000 no-knock or quick-knock raids conducted by local police, the majority of which were looking for marijuana. And that's some of the news for Monday, April 5th, 2021. The news is produced by Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>